Right, good evening, friends. We're reading from two different psalms. Um, so we'll start at Psalm 119, which is very, very long, so we're not going to do the whole thing. Um, <laughs> we're doing from verse 33 to verse 40. If you'd like a paper Bible, which I would very much recommend, Ben has them above his head because Bible comes over brain. It's a good, vi- good visual that I do with my youth kids. It's great. All right. Going once, going twice. Sold to Adam Davies. (laughs) All right, Psalm 119 from verse 33. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things, Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. We'll move forwards to Psalm 143. We're going to read um, all of this one. So verse 1 through to verse 12. Psalm 143, a psalm of David. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, for I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. Thank you, Bridge. Please keep your Bibles open wherever you like, because we're going to be jumping around. Let's check I've got the power here. Yep. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word. And I pray that it will please you to work powerfully among us by your Holy Spirit and convict us of the truths of your word that you have us learn and uh, take to heart tonight. Uh, we pray it for his glory. Amen. Uh, Once upon a time, I was part of an interview panel for um, employing a scripture coordinator. One of the questions that we asked each of of the four candidates, as was the case, was, how does God give us guidance today? And I remember that uh, one of the candidates answered, well, you know, it's like a rock in your shoe. You see, the idea was that God lets you know you need to attend to something in a vague and subtle way. Perhaps you 
want to make a certain choice or think a certain way, but God is making those steps uncomfortable by putting a figurative rock in your shoe, so you're forced to contend with how God's now making you think and feel, which presumably would have some kind of impact on your thinking and decision. Three of the four candidates had a very similar rock-in-your-shoe kind of answer when it came to the question of how does God guide, which is possibly why none of those three candidates got the job. But it goes to show that when it comes to the topic of guidance, God's people can have all sorts of half-baked ideas along with, frankly, full-baked confusion. When it comes to making a big decision, sometimes we hear Christians say, I've prayed about it. As if that somehow indicates that the course of action eventually taken must therefore be the right one. Conversely, sometimes as Christians, we can easily be really guilty of making significant decisions without considering God at all. One minute we'll gladly affirm that God is sovereign and all-powerful, and yet the next minute we kind of relegate God to the realm of the spiritual things while we get on with a real day-to-day life all by ourselves. Similarly, we can even misapply the reality of God's sovereignty by thinking that every single decision is of equally profound importance in our lives such that we end up with paralysing anxiety about whether we should buy this brand of toothpaste or that one. It's not uncommon for Christians to believe that God had a certain path in mind for me, but because I missed on his calling or his direction, or because I did something wrong, well, I can't walk that path anymore, so now I'm, I'm resigned to walking under plan B or plan C or plan D that God had. See, I'm missing out on the, the good one because of some sort of failure to, to discern his guidance. Now, like many big topics that the Word of God brings up, there's far more that we can consider in the space of one sermon. But to get rid of the rock in our shoe when it comes to guidance, this evening I'm giving what I've called a crash course in the topic of guidance. And I've chosen what I'm fairly confident, at least, the four major points to understand when it comes to this topic. The first one, and possibly the biggest one, I think, the one that does the most work in the shortest space of time, is to consider the destination to which God is guiding his people. And juvenile Ben likes that photo because it looks like the destination is a mighty guitar pick at the end of the road. It's a destination. Once you see that, you can't unsee it. Brothers and sisters, history has a destination. It has a goal. It has an end point. The acorn moves toward becoming a tree. The baby moves toward becoming an adult. The very hungry caterpillar moves to becoming a beautiful butterfly. I'm delighted to say, even a non-sporty person like me, who at least has a bit of time for soccer, to say the Matildas are moving towards now a semi-final. That's pretty good. Maybe, maybe that's the end point, you know? And so we... We can look at the observable world and work out, yes, there is some sense in which everything has an end point. History is moving. But, of course, very thankfully, for those that he has called and chosen belong to his perfect kingdom, God has actually revealed definitively where all history is heading. We see it in uh, the grand opening, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, verse 9. I'll put the words on the screen where it says... He, that is God, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment. That's the end. And what is the end? Well, the next words. That is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, 
all things, and therefore all people, are on their way, somehow, one way or another, to being summed up under the rule of Jesus. All things will be properly aligned under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the goal to which all history is moving. For those who are already spiritually aligned with Jesus, well, the end of history is going to be absolutely wonderful. For those who remain in their natural state of rebellion against him, well, that end is going to be terrible. But in either case, all people will literally be reconciled. That is, they'll be put right, whether it's in a good way or a bad way, they'll be reconciled to the lordship of Jesus. And not just all people, by the way, but even all things, everything that's created. So it's no surprise that in another place in the New Testament, where we learn about the end point of history, uh, the creation itself gets specified. Romans 8, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Our destination is also the destination of all creation. The truth that all people and all things are on their way to being summed up under the perfect rule of Jesus is what God has clearly revealed to us, his children. Now, if God is moving us towards living under Jesus' perfect rule in eternity, well, it makes sense that he takes us through a process in which our thoughts, words, deeds are increasingly aligned with Jesus' rule. Our future reality is one that, well, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Which is why it's also the case that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son under whose rule all things are moving to be conformed under. Because we're heading towards perfectly living under the rule of Jesus, the good that God is doing uh, for all those who love him is actually to conform us to the image of his son under whose rule we'll live in all eternity. And it's for that reason that suffering can also fall under the category of the good that God is working for his people. From what I unashamedly plug as the best book written on the topic of guidance that is in my top five, and some of you will know it, uh, namely Philip Jensen and Tony Payne's Guidance and the Voice of God, he says this regarding suffering, and it's really good. To say that God works in everything for our good does not mean that he will remove all pain and suffering from our path. On the contrary... If becoming like Christ is the good that God is working for us, then pain and suffering will almost certainly come our way. And through that pain and suffering, God will work in his sovereign way to mould us in the shape of Jesus. You get someone coming along and teaching you that in Christ you shouldn't expect pain or suffering, you're getting someone who is not guiding you in accordance with God's revelation. Now that's the big picture. That's the destination for all things being summed up under the lordship of Jesus in all eternity. 
And for Christians, that means God is in the process of moulding us into Christ's likeness. That is the direction, if you like, of God's guidance. The second big point, remember I've got four, the second big point to grasp is that there's, there are actually requirements, these requirements that need to be met in order for us to receive God's guidance. Now, this point is relatively easy because there are only two things ever required from us. They're the very things by which we initially come into a saving relationship with Jesus and they're the things by which we continue to live under his rule. And I suspect most of you know what they are, but they are, of course, repentance and faith. We'll start with faith. Faith is an unfortunate, religious-y sounding word. But in reality, it's just a normal, everyday concept. It means trust. Trusting in something reasonable on the basis of good evidence. If we trust that God has made us fit for an eternity with him, and if we trust that God has the power to complete the good work he's begun in us and bring us safely into his perfect eternity, then we'll joyfully follow as he guides. Sure, our faith can and will be shaky at times, but he, God, remains trustworthy, so overall we will follow his guiding. If we don't trust God, if we do not exercise faith, then no matter how much guidance he might give, naturally we'll not be willing to take it. If you don't trust that the Uber driver isn't completely stoned and drunk off his brain, you're not going to get in the car. It's that kind of thing. Same goes for repentance. Repentance means a deliberate change of direction and behaviour. Uh, and it means that in an ongoing way. This is something that Christians, we don't give enough airtime. This repentance isn't a one-off thing. It is a one-off thing, but it's kind of like a one-off thing that you continue. A uh, really good illustration, I've always found this a bit humorous, a good illustration of repentance is marriage. You see, a man and a woman agree that they'll no longer live as singles, but will join as a married couple. They'll live together instead of living separately. They make those promises on the wedding day and they go on a honeymoon and they set up home together. There are all sorts of emotions involved in that whole process, but it has nothing to do with the fact they've made the initial decision to live as husband and wife and they therefore continue to operate within that sphere. It's not as if they get back from the honeymoon and go, now, I wonder if we should keep being married today. Like... No, you've, you're, of course you are. That, that You've repented of your singleness and now you're staying married. Often, husbands and wives will fail to live in accordance with their marriage vows, but if they genuinely stand by their decision, they'll correct their errors and continue in their new direction. And so it is with us and God. We will initially repent, start living under the rule of Jesus, and therefore we'll continue on the path of repentance, that is, continuing to live under Jesus' rule. And this is important because genuine, initial, and ongoing repentance is actually a requirement for receiving God's guidance. Again, Jensen and Payne say it far better than I could. So here's another spot on quote from those guys. It says this There are many people who would like to identify themselves as Christians, 
but who are not willing to forego their old manner of life. To some extent, we all carry with us vestiges of our pre-Christian past, but for some people there is not even the willingness to change. They are satisfied with the emotional experience of having heard the gospel and felt sorry for their past, but they have no desire to turn and lead a new life. There is no repentance. These people will receive no guidance from God. When he calls them to go a certain way and they don't like it, they'll refuse or ignore it or find some way of avoiding the issue. Guidance only comes to the humble, to those who sorrow over their sin and are prepared to listen and change, that is, repent. So, both initial and ongoing faith and initial and ongoing repentance are necessary requirements for receiving guidance from God. The super, super short and simple way of saying this is basically, you've got to be following Jesus in order to receive God's guidance. And that brings us to the third important thing to understand on the topic of guidance, namely the character by which God's guidance happens in our lives. Here are two memorable terms that I suspect John will like because of the alliteration. Passive participation and conscious cooperation. A bit of a tongue twister. Passive participation, conscious cooperation. And I'm really proud that I found these photos because I'm not a visual person, but I think this sort of really captures both of those things really well. Uh, I'll explain why in a minute. God guides us, he's in the process of guiding and moving us, both in our passive participation in his plans, as well as in our conscious cooperation with what he has revealed. I'll explain that. God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside his will, his care. He monitors even the number of hairs on our heads, which in some people's cases is a diminishing number. And so all people, all people everywhere at any time are involved in passive participation in the grand plan of God. Don't take it from me, take it from God himself. Proverbs 16.9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Again, 21.1, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. Again, Psalm 121, verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. In fact, when we do sinful and ungodly things, even then, God is still sovereignly guiding us toward our destination. A famous example of this, you might remember the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and then years later he confronts them about it and they, they feel really, you know, like tail between the legs kind of thing. But Joseph says to those brothers, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it to accomplish what is being done. In other words, God intended it for good. The same, of course, applies ultimately the death of Jesus, doesn't it? In which he bore the penalty for all our sins and ungodliness. Acts chapter 2, 
This man, Jesus, was handed over to you, you Jews, uh, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The sinfulness of the people didn't somehow remove them from, the, from being under the sovereign plan and direction of God. In every single hour, every minute, every second, every day, God is at work bringing about his good plans and purposes in our lives. In every single decision, every event, whether we are conscious of it or not, God is guiding us toward our destination. And so one of my favourites, Philippians 1.6, you can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are at all times passively participating in God's plan to unite all things under Christ. And yet, God also calls us to conscious cooperation. In fact, it's precisely because God is sovereignly at work bringing about his perfect plan that his children delight to consciously cooperate with what he is doing. Uh, this is why I was really proud of the photo. You see, the parent who's riding the tandem bike with a kid, right? That parent, if they're competent in no directions, unlike me, will get the kid to the destination regardless of what the kid does. But any sensible parent will be saying, hey, kid, do a bit of pedaling, right? Now, whether they do or not, it's not going to change the fact that they're going to get to the destination, but any parent who's sensible and any kid who, you know, like loves their parent even a little bit or listens to it will go, oh, yeah, I just better do my bit, you know. It doesn't make a difference, but it does make a difference. They are definitely having passive participation, but we encourage them towards conscious cooperation as well. Once you sort of get that picture in your head, you realise it's the kind of thing that Paul says to those who are being guided by God towards our destination of being united under Christ. Here it is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why should you continue to work out your salvation? Conscious cooperation, why should you do that? Well, the next verse, 13, 4, because... It is God who works in you to will, to act, in order to fill his good purpose. God's riding the bike, you'll get there no matter what, but because God's riding it and you're with God, well, for goodness sake, pedal. Or again, same book of the Bible, but chapter 3, Paul says, I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I haven't finished pedaling but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God is constantly guiding us toward our destination and he will use even our poor choices and failures of, as, as part of that process. And yet at the same time, he rightly calls on us to consciously Cooperate as part of that process. So how then do we know what God wants us to be thinking, saying and doing in the day to
today, can we get more specific on the whole conscious cooperation aspect of God guiding us? Well, yes, we can, and that brings us to our final point, namely the means. We all know that God is a speaking God. We learn that when we open the Bible to page one, right? God speaks. He communicates with humanity. Being all-powerful, he's absolutely able to speak in whatever way he chooses. With Balaam, one of my favourite stories from the book of Numbers, Balaam and Balak, he spoke through the donkey. If you don't know that one, check it out. Read Numbers. I won't tell you which chapter, so you have to read the whole book. God can do that. With Belshazzar. Anyone know what book that's in? Daniel, yep. He spoke by literally hand writing on the wall. One dollar will be given. No, I don't have a dollar to give. Anyone can tell me what the message was from the hand on the wall? Does anyone remember? Many, many. Here, your dad. Yeah, but between three squires, we've basically got it. Many, many tackle parson. Yeah. Uh, he can do that. Um, with Gideon, what do you use to communicate with Gideon? Any remember? Anyone remember? Fleece. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's going to have moisture on it or not, what a whacked way to come. He can do that. At Mount Sinai, of course, he spoke. And it was the thundering voice, the terrifying voice that made Moses shake and say, and all the Israelites say, please make it stop, right? He can do that. With Elijah, almost the profound officers, it was like the still small voice. He can speak like that. But what God can do in order to communicate and what he will do are two different things. It so happens that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, well, there's been a bit of a sharpening, a focus on God's communicative act. In these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. This is wonderful. We, what a time to be alive on this side of Jesus in the last days. You see, in these last days, God has chosen to speak to us in a far more supernatural and spectacular way than he ever did before. That is through personally coming into the world in human flesh and revealing himself fully and finally Jesus spoke of God's written word, the Old Testament scriptures, as all being fulfilled in his person and work. And he also promised that after his ascension, he'd pour out the Holy Spirit who would remind his followers of all that he had said and taught. That same spirit orchestrated the writing of the New Testament in which the person and work of Jesus is made clear and is applied to God's people who live in these last days. And so, for example, Hebrews chapter 3, where the writer is exhorting a group of new Jewish converts to persevere in their faith, he quotes part of the Old Testament scripture, namely Psalm 95, but he does it in such a way as to make it obvious that it's the current word of God, understood perfectly now in light of the person and work of Jesus. Uh, he writes, Hebrews 3, 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, Today, well, as present tense as you can get, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Notice the writer does not think of Psalm 95, written hundreds of years before, as something that God was saying when it was first written and sung, but something that God is currently saying through his Holy Spirit. 
It's no surprise that that whole section concludes with the writer saying, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is very powerful. Jesus himself believes that God's written word speaks to its contemporary hearers. God's Old Testament written word speaks presently to the the hearers. Uh, Here's an example. When the Sadducees tried to justify their denial of the resurrection to Jesus uh, by saying um, uh, uh, that, you know, when a... What was the story when there's a woman who's had one husband and he died, another one come and he died, another one come and he died, and Jesus goes, you, you, well, he doesn't say you idiots, but it's along those lines. Here's what Jesus actually said. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? What God said back then to you now and then he quotes from the book of exodus i'm the god of abraham god of isaac god of jacob he's not the god of the dead but of the living and if you happen to be paying attention during uh, bridget's first bible reading from psalm 119 you'll have noticed that even the righteous person who lived prior to these last days in the time where god spoke in various ways still viewed god's written word as the authority when it comes to guidance I'll read you a bit again, Psalm 119 from verse 33. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find a light. Turn my heart toward your statutes. Friends, when it comes to the means by which God guides, the Bible makes it plain that God speaks to us today by his Son, through his Spirit, in the Scriptures. God speaks to us today by his Son, through his Spirit, in the Scriptures. Regarding Scripture... As the means of God's guidance, again, Philip and Tony point out that this may not seem very mystical or magical and therefore might lack some fascination for unspiritual minds, yet it is an extraordinary thing that the living God should speak to us in this way, namely by his Son through his Spirit in Scripture. Now, friends, it is at this point that it's also easy for us to make a fairly common mistake. We can easily think that, yes, God does speak to us in the Scriptures, but that the Bible gives guidance only in a sort of a general way and only to maybe some parts of our lives. But there are certain decisions, such as who should I marry, what job should I take, or what school should I send my kids to, etc., where we think that in order to discover God's will, we need some kind of revelation beyond what he has given us in the scriptures. Perhaps we need direct words, inner promptings, visions, dreams, feelings of peace, the rock in your shoe kind of revelation. Well, again, from my favourite book on this topic, Guidance of the Voice of God, it is common to hear Christians say things like, 
I'm waiting for the Lord's leading about that decision. As if God has not already given them sufficient guidance and is about to send them some special word or indication. Through the rise of the charismatic movement, Christians all over the world are convinced that they should expect God to impart fresh revelations to them above and beyond Scripture. And that this should be a normal part of their Christian experience. Yet the guidance God gives by his Son through his Spirit in the Scriptures is so amazingly comprehensive and profound that the only reason we end up with this problem is we actually fail to take into account just how much guidance gives God gives in every facet of life that matters. And for an example that I love to use, that I literally, in preparation for this, spent about five minutes thinking about... I'll show you how that's the case. Here's the example, driving a car. How does God guide me when I'm driving my car? Here's what I come up with. Love your neighbour as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19, quoted by Jesus. Make sure your tyres aren't balding because that's not loving to you. It makes it dangerous for other drivers on the road and the car is safe and he's registered to drive. Obey the governing authorities, Romans chapter 13. That means no speeding. It means when you're in an intersection at 2am and there's no other car for miles around, you still have to put your indicator on because God is the one who's put the governing authorities in place and he's the one that sees whether or not... So by putting the indicator on, you're actually honouring God. Every good gift comes from above. James chapter 1 verse 17. Give thanks to God that you have a car and that you have the ability to drive it if you do. Not everyone has the ability to drive the car or to be able to afford one. And would you believe there are cars that can be modified for people who have various disabilities such that they can still drive them? Give thanks to God because every good thing comes from above. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. Matthew chapter 5 verse 41. Be willing to give somebody a lift even if it's out of the way. Use your car in order to serve other people in your anger do not sin oh. ephesians 4 26 need i say more when someone cuts you off in front in a way they shouldn't have oh my goodness and if you have kids it's compounded by the fact that one day one of them will say to you something like daddy why did you yell at that driver and make this sign on your head Why on earth do we put those Christian stickers on our car of the little fish or the Jesus sign? The one place where you're tempted to be more ungodly than almost any other place. And you're going to advertise that you're a Christian when you do that. In your anger, do not sin. Next, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15. Why have I put this in here? Well, have you seen the price of petrol recently? How tempting to just drive off quickly without paying. But no, Bible says you should suffer, yeah, maybe for good reason, but not for a stupid reason like being someone who steals stuff. Here's another one, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. I like listening to the radio when I drive, I'm sure I'm not alone. But gosh, I've got to tell you, there are some radio programs, some radio stations out there that are just absolutely filled to the brim with smart and sexual innuendo and perverse speech and worldly godless ideas that you've got to change the station. Put on a, what's that horrible thing, Spotify or something like that. Or, yeah. Listen to Dream Theatre, repent. God gives us more guidance 
in the scriptures about just one little thing I thought of, five minutes driving a car. He gives us more guidance about that in the scriptures than most of us can keep in our heads at one time. So much so that there is something laughably ungrateful about the Christian who then says, please God, give me a special sign about which lane I shall drive in. Either the scriptures make it clear or it totally does not matter. Either the scriptures make it clear or it does not matter. In fact, apart from his spirit working through scripture, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect him to. The New Testament is actually filled with warnings against other means that claim to give authoritative guidance from God. And the reason those warnings are there is because God knows that his people will so easily be tempted to seek guidance outside of his spirit-inspired word. The heart really is good at manufacturing idols. Example, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen, a vision. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. Now, God is absolutely all-powerful, can do, can say, can communicate however he well pleases. God, if he should so decide could choose to have gravity stop its operation on me right now and I'll float up, in this case, quite a way to the ceiling. I'm just going to stand here and wait for half an hour to see whether he's going to do that. You okay okay with that? In silence? What a colossal waste of time. (laughs) That he can do it, he's absolutely no indication whatsoever is for me to think, well, I better expect that to be the case when he's promised what he will do. You go to your friend's house, your friend says, can you go get the milk? Where are you going to go? I'm going to go to the fridge. Now, I suppose there's a small possibility, if you've got friends, especially like mine, that maybe the milk will be on their bedside table. But you would expect them to specify that if that's the case. You go where you know that the milk's going to be. God says, I'm going to guide you, where are you going to... How's he going to go? Well, you go where his voice is going to be. It's in the scriptures. No, he can do it in other ways. But to sit there and expect that to be the case is actually to have ignored what he has made clear already. How does God guide me? By talking to me. How do I hear his voice? By reading the scriptures. Do they show me the way I should go? They most certainly do. They teach me how God wants me to live. They rebuke me when I depart from the way. They correct me and they show me the way back. They train me in the right way to go. They guide me every step of the way to the great destination that God has for me to be conformed to the image of Jesus and live in God's glorious presence forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're the God who speaks and you speak so powerfully for our good and that you've spoken in these last days by your Son, that we have access to him in the power of your spirit through your holy word. May we so delight in the guidance you give in the scriptures and sit so loosely to whatever you don't give, not worry about things that, that aren't really contained therein. 
May we not be cavalier in the scriptures and think that we deserve some kind of special word when your scriptures say so much on so many things. May we instead be like the psalmist who delights and rejoices to meditate on your words, your decrees, your precepts, to find such a solid foundation in them. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the way that we uh, manufacture idols in our hearts and we think we know better than your word and we need to look elsewhere. And continue, Father, guiding us even through suffering to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, for we know that we are on the way to being summed up under him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.